Genesis chapter 4. Uh, Genesis, the book of Genesis, if you take seriously the uh, historicity of the book, which I do, uh, they estimate is roughly about uh, 2,500 years, the events that occur in the book of Genesis. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 uh, alone is 1,500 of those 2,500 years. So a lot, a lot of space, a lot of time is, is uh, used up here. And remember, Scripture is, the Bible is not an exhaustive history book. Here's what I mean by that. I mean, it is not the role of Scripture to tell you, just like in the life of Jesus, the Bible says if everything could be written that Jesus did or taught, there wouldn't be a, you know, a little hyperbole, but there wouldn't be books to contain it. Meaning, the writers, authors, Scripture, it is selective history. It's not telling you everything that Adam and Eve did you know, during their days or year. It'll, it'll have leaps of hundreds of years in, in a sentence. So keep that in mind uh, that it only wants you to know what it wants you to know. It has a very specific thematic timeline. And so when it deals with people, it's dealing with people selectively that the Lord, uh, His purposes and plans that you, we need to know. So keep that also in mind that there's a lot of data and history that is just we don't know you know uh, about uh, but there but what we do need to know in relationship to God's redemptive history uh, he has uh, put that in scripture now when we come to chapter 4 we immediately see remember Genesis 3 ended and it won't I don't have uh, chapter 3 on the screen but if you have your Bibles, and hopefully you use your Bibles, it ends in verse 24, where the Lord drove out the man, and he placed cherubim, angels, at the east of the Garden of Eden at the entrance, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are banished uh, from the garden, from this perfect environment that God has created. So that's where things left off. So now when we come to chapter 4, we're going to see the effects of this estrangement of relationship. We're going to see the effects of sin. Uh, chapter 3 deals with the root of sin. Chapter 4, we begin to see the fruit of sin. Are you with me? So now we begin to see the effects of of the uh, fall, the sinfulness that has now entered into the human uh, dynamic here. Uh, one thing that as we look through Cain and Abel and in the context, the beginning of what created the conflict between the two brothers and the first murder, keep in mind the context, the situation had to do with worship. Had to do with worship, bringing Different, you know, the conflict as we'll read in a minute. Remember, the context is the area of worship and how that generated conflict with Cain. So let's uh, just for um, just to kind of begin here. Let's read the first few verses. Uh, let's read through uh, verses one through eight, and then we'll make some comments there. And I kind of gave you a loose outline there to just kind of 
keep a flow here and uh, try not to uh, give you uh, as much detail. And sometimes that, uh, sometimes trying to cram too much in isn't always helpful. But let's begin reading in verse 1. You can follow on the screen now. Adam knew Eve, his wife. It doesn't mean they shook hands and were introduced to each other. It means that knew is a euphemism for a sexual union that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain and said, uh, she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. Whoops. No, no, I'll get to that in a minute. All right. I forgot I interjected some of those. So now we see two sons born to Adam and Eve. There's no, there's no, sometimes we maybe have thought this, but there's no um, evidence that they were twins. Okay. They were born at uh, separate times seems to be the the natural flow there. There's no, there's no suggestion because when like uh, Jacob and Esau, it specifically states they were twins. And uh, so Cain and Abel weren't necessarily twins, but born in, at separate times. Um, in chapter four, as I said, we're going to see the digression or progress of sin. Just by way of a little introduction to keep the big picture, uh, the uh, uh, structure in chapters, Genesis 1 through 3, we see the generation, the generation of God. We see the chapters 4 through 11, we see the degeneration, the result of sin and its effects. So you see generation 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 11, degeneration. And then in chapters 12 through 50, we see regeneration in the sense of God's work, covenant working through Abraham. So we're here still in this chapter 4 as we see the setup here. And notice that in this uh, passage we're introduced to the two brothers, Abel and Cain. It says that Adam uh, knew his wife, that they as in a married relationship, and uh, that she conceived. And there's a, there's a suggestion, or not a suggestion, but there's some thought here. Remember in Genesis 3.15, I don't have it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles... Genesis 3.15 is important here because in Genesis 3.15, this was the word that was uh, in verse 14 and 15, the word of the Lord that was spoken uh, as a result of uh, the curse that God uh, gave to the serpent in verse 14 of Genesis 3. And he says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle. And then, of course, verse 15 is the uh, pivotal uh, verse because there's aspects that point to God's redemptive purpose and plan in verse 15 when the scripture reads, and the Lord says, I will put enmity or I will put hostility or I will put division. Enmity is the uh, word in the King James or New King James. I will put enmity. Remember, the Lord is speaking here to the devil, the serpent, uh, so he says, I will put enmity, division, hatred, separation, hostility between you and the woman and between your seed, between your line, you could say it that way, your line and her seed. So we see right there in Genesis 15, 3.15 that the Lord says there's going to be a division 
there's going to be a hatred, there's going to be a hostility, and there's going to be two lines that are operating on the face of the earth. There's going to be an ungodly generational line, and then there's going to be a godly generational line. And the Lord is speaking prophetically or giving a future uh, preview of coming attractions, if you will, in verse 15, and saying that in this line I'm going to bring forth through the woman her seed, and if you have your scriptures, you'll see that her seed, the S uh, seed there for her is capitalized. And so in theology, they look at that as a, the first uh, word of prophecy in the coming of Messiah, the future coming of Messiah, because it clearly points to a hostility between Satan and this seed, but it also says that that uh, this seed, my seed, her seed, it says that he shall bruise your head. And the word bruise there, your translation may be a little different, but it really means crush. He, will crush, you, you, he this seed, this one that will be brought forth from the woman, will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. In other words, you will strike him. You will attempt to hurt him, but it won't be fatal. But he will give you the fatal blow, okay? So all that's in chapter 315. And the reason I belabor that is because we see now in, in a uh, fulfillment form, we see this beginning to take place when we come to chapter 4 between Cain and Abel. Um, so let's look at Cain here. In Scripture, uh, she gave birth to Cain. And what I started to say uh, earlier is that some have uh, speculated, and that's really all it is, speculation, that when she says, I have acquired, and his name, Cain, means acquired, that there's a little suggestion, and, and again, I don't know Hebrew, but some of the different ways that the various Hebrew texts uh, can be read or translated. But the suggestion is, is that Eve perhaps in anticipation of the Lord fulfilling what he said in 3.15, might have thought or certainly at least hoped for or anticipated that maybe, remember, this is the first time anybody's been pregnant. There's perhaps within Eve an anticipation that maybe this child that the Lord has given her that she's going to conceive, that maybe this is the one that the Lord spoke of in Genesis 3.15 because she's, she heard what the Lord said and maybe she thought, this is, this is it, this is happening here. Um, because she said, I've acquired a man from Yahweh and perhaps, but again, we know he's not, but just perhaps in her mind. Then it says that she bore again, this time his brother Abel. And it says in their different jobs here, Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a tiller of the ground, both uh, needful, worthy professions. There's no suggestion that being a shepherd was more spiritual than being someone that was the, the farmer or the tiller of the ground. But it just states their role, okay? Now, in 1 John, we have a little, we have some information about Cain that I just, that's where I had the 1 John here that's on the screen. And it gives us some little information, some information about Cain. Uh, John writes, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, 
who was of the wicked one. So if we were, and it says murdered his brother. It says, why did he murder his brother? Why did he murder him? Because his works, meaning Cain, were evil and his brothers were righteous. So the New Testament gives us a little insight on Cain and his character, his heart, and what was the motive behind what we'll see here was the murder, uh, was the premeditated, I believe, killing of his brother. Hebrews 4 gives us some information about Abel. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gift, and uh, through it, uh, though he being dead, still speaks. Jesus said in uh, Matthew 23, verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of, again, Jesus refers to Abel as righteous Abel, uh, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. But again, I just want you to see that Jesus certainly testifies to the historicity, historicity of Abel, calls Abel righteous. A couple of others, Luke 11, uh, speaks, and speaks about and makes reference to Abel as a prophet. Let's look at Luke 11, verse 50, that the blood of all the prophets, okay, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. Again, he's speaking kind of a judgment against the Israel and the way that they treated messengers of God. From the blood of Abel, now remember, he just, he's talking about prophets, and then he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, meaning who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Meaning, and he refers puts Abel into that category as a prophet, okay? Uh, so again, just a few references related to Abel here. And so let's pick it back up in Genesis 4, verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. It's interesting, the phrase, in the process of time, might would suggest um, that, and you may have a, uh, uh, a different translation, but there's also, it means at the end of days, which might would suggest that in a very uh, early form, if you will, that, and it suggests that Cain and Abel understood that there was a pattern or a designated time, place, etc., to offer this sacrifice. In other words, we're reading a little bit into the white space a little bit, but it's not too much of a stretch that we know that when Genesis uh, chapter 3 ended, uh, we know that the Bible says that the Lord uh, made tunics for Adam and Eve, uh, skins of animals, which again, in order to get those skins from animals, an animal or two had to what? Had to die. So the suggestion is, is that in a very, very, in a very uh, small way, we see the covering, we see several pictures here of God covering now sinful Adam and Eve, not allowing their own wardrobe to be 
to be that, which would be the acceptable fashion now uh, as they leave the garden. Remember what they did? They sowed fig leaves, all right? They did that, but the Lord clothed them through blood sacrifice that was picturing a covering, a temporary covering, but we also see the suggestion of a blood sacrifice in that covering of, of the animal skins that Adam and Eve were covered with by the Lord. So fast forward now, we think, okay, where did Cain and Abel, uh, one, learn about offering a sacrifice to the Lord uh, in the process of time, which just sounds like, well, it happened many days, but, it, but I think a better way to understand is that after the end of days, which means that there was a set time and purpose that at least they were operating in, in this new family, in this new, new setting, if you will. That whatever they were doing, they learned by their parents. They learned by Adam and Eve the type of sacrifice to offer and that there was a set place or a set time. Some have um, done some research and suggest that the place that the offering or the sacrifice uh, that we see them doing here, that that was actually at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Now, if you think about it, and I'll maybe bring this out a little more when we get into talking about the tabernacle later, uh, but if you think about it, think about if you can, if you look on a on a diagram of the old of the tabernacle of Moses, and obviously the later the that was a prototype for the structure of the temple. But you had a in the outer court, you had the sacrifice that was made, and then you had a separation between the uh, uh, holy of holies, and within that you had the most holy place which was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on the uh, curtain of that uh, entrance that separated uh, between the outer part and the inner part, that's in the inner, that's where you had the, uh, uh, the um, menorah, uh, which, which is a picture of the tree, which is a symbol of the tree of life. In other words, you have this symbolism that almost fits an identical pattern to that which is pictured in the garden. If you look at the garden as a temple and you look at the... Remember, God planted these trees in the midst of the garden, so it's a, it's a centered... Uh, uh, you have the outer aspect, and in the middle of this garden, you have these two trees. So again, if you think of it in that term, it would make sense that as they were offering the sacrifice, that it was uh, certainly not within the garden because they were banished. And that... So if you want to... Again... Don't go out and start a new church over that. But it's interesting to think about uh, that, that there was somehow they knew uh, a time and a place to offer this sacrifice or worship to the Lord. So he, here we are, uh, one generation out from Adam and Eve, and already we see certain patterns developing that somehow they learned somewhere. And uh, it would not be too much of a stretch to suggest that mom and dad certainly uh, instructed them or handed that down in some way. And so they offered a sacrifice in the process of time. It came to pass. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground uh, to the Lord. 
Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. As we've kind of looked at the uh, scriptures there in the New Testament, we, talked, we saw the scriptures where Abel was referred to as righteous, that he offered a better sacrifice. I don't think it has anything, I know, uh, you know, certainly um, there's suggestion that the, the sacrifice was rejected because uh, Abel offered a, a blood sacrifice and Cain offered that which was harvested or, or from, the, from the ground. Uh, you know, certainly the fruit of the ground and whatever it was the, that he brought out probably looked a lot prettier than the bloody sacrifice of an animal. But, um, but whatever it was, the implication is that Cain offered that which, which he, he produced, or perhaps he thought, well, I'm not, and again, I'm speculating here, but it suggests that maybe Cain uh, was freelancing and he's going to worship the way he wants to worship, or he's going to offer what he wants to worship, or you know, what he's going to offer. Now, remember, fast forward, uh, grain offerings and, and those type of things were acceptable offerings uh, in the Old Testament economy, but uh, perhaps in this early case uh, that, uh, you know, we don't know. But, but the issue, I don't think, had anything to do with what they necessarily brought, but it seems to suggest that there's a heart issue that Abel, being righteous and a heart to the Lord, and Cain uh, did not have a heart that was worshiping the Lord. Let's keep reading here. So Abel, and don't miss the language here. It says, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. But then it says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. Now, firstborn, you know, when you see that in Scripture, when it talks about uh, offerings or tithes, you know, it's the first It's the first of the lump. It's the first... Uh, uh, off the top, it's, it's the best of their fat, meaning that Abel brought a sacrifice that was the suggestion is he brought his best as honoring to the Lord to come before the Lord. And the Lord, it says, respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now notice here, we see, we see a, a, a little glimpse of maybe some heart issues in Cain and Cain was what? Very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So here we see in this... Uh, there's a superiority to Abel's sacrifice. Let me give you, let me suggest, and this is not in your outline, so you may want to just write this down. One is that I, I believe when you pull in the scriptures from Hebrews and others that speak about uh, righteous Abel, is that his sacrifice and his offering was superior because it was offered in faith. It was offered as, uh, as unto the Lord is the kind of sacrifice that he gave. Uh, Secondly is that the quality of his sacrifice. We read, it says, firstborn of the fat. He gave of the best, okay? Again, we're seeing Abel's heart as compared to Cain's heart. 
And then the character of, of the sacrifice that, that when uh, Cain was, uh, his offering was not received, uh, he was angry. Jealous might be an implication here. It says that he was very angry and his countenance fell, which again suggests a heart issue with Cain that was different than the heart issue that Abel had unto the Lord. I think it's important as we look at before the actual uh, striking that Cain did against Abel on this, on this idea of worship is that worship, uh, somebody, somebody said this, I don't know who said it, maybe it was Skip Heitzig that said this, and I wrote it down. God never separates the worship that you bring from the worshiper that brings whatever you bring. In other words, we are really good about feeling that form is acceptable worship. You with me? In other words, doing the acts, whatever that is, whether it's going to church, whether it's singing, whatever. You know, we can sing, we can, we can engage in, in, in the singing, maybe clap our hands, maybe raise our hands or whatever, but our heart, we're not engaged. We're disengaged. So we can, um, we can be really good at going through the motions of worship and not have a heart that's genuinely worshiping the Lord. So even though Cain did the motion, brought an offering, can't say he didn't bring an offering, and again, we're speculating, we don't know whether the issue was the nature of it, but whatever it was, Cain's heart was not right before the Lord. Because when God said, I don't respect your offering, I don't receive your offering, he was very angry. You know, Jesus said in uh, Matthew 7, he quoted from Isaiah, Isaiah, uh, and I, I think it's in Matthew 15, 7 and 9, but he quotes from Isaiah that speaks about how this generation honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Verse 8, Now Cain talked with, his, talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass. Now again, it uses that language. We don't know how much time is involved. We don't know. We don't know. It just says he talked with, his, talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass. If Abel was a righteous man, if Abel was a godly man, if Abel represents that godly line, would it not be fair to say that Abel might have given his brother some counsel and said, hey, bro, come on, don't, don't get your attitude in, in gear here, you know? Come before the Lord. He's a, he's a good God. He's merciful. Uh, just, just go before him. Get it right. Do it. Okay, you messed up. Get your heart right and bring... Come before the Lord and, and get things right. I don't know. But in this conversation, that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against, against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So now you see the digression, two lines here. What does the Lord say in Genesis 3.15? Not that just Satan will bruise the heel, but he will attempt 
He will attempt to destroy the seed. He will attempt to destroy the godly line, but he won't be successful. Okay, now we know the end of the victory of Christ in crushing the, you know, defeating the enemy. But already we see now what is Satan doing? He's sought to destroy godly Abel, the godly line of Abel, um, as a result of this anger and this jealousy. Um, and so the Lord comes to him and said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel your brother? And he lies, doesn't he? He lies, he lies to God and says, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm not in charge of him. Some of us, you know, I was, I was the little brother. So some of you may have had to watch over little brothers or whatever, and you probably got annoying. I know my brother next from me, who's with the Lord now, was about 10 years older. And, uh, you know, he was always annoyed at having to watch me when my mom worked or whatever. And always liked to play wrestling, which usually meant I'd be crying over his... <laughs> over his, his babysitting methods, which were quite controversial. Um, but he lies. He says, I don't know. And then notice his other answer. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, what have you done? Remember, the Lord never asks questions to get information. Right? He's looking for confession. He's not getting information here. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your, blood's, of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. He says that when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Uh, the phrase there uh, in that culture, uh, which would imply that you're banished from the land, it's, it's a term that's used in that culture, meaning that you are going to be permanently expunged from your family. So what do you, remember what uh, Cain said, am I by brother's keeper? And the Lord's judgment is, nobody's going to be your keeper. You're on your own, pal, in the judgment. Now, think about... The mercy of God here. God could have taken Cain's life, couldn't he? But God is showing grace. God is showing compassion. Even when he says, Cain says, <laughs> kind of, the punishment is greater than I can bear. Well, he doesn't know really what God can do, but he says it's more than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out of this day, out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And here we see the mercy and grace of God. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Cain, you said you're not your brother's keeper. But I am Yahweh, I am a covenant-keeping God, and even in your sin, I'm going to be your keeper. Do you see that? What does he say? I'm going to protect you. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him 
should kill him. How many of you know, want, want to know what the mark of Cain is? I have no idea. And nobody else does either. But the word mark in the Hebrew really is also the word for sign. So, you know, it, we don't know. We don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it was, I don't know. We can just speculate. So your, your ideas are as good as mine. Mormonism, Joseph Smith uh, had a so-called revelation or taught, and this was really Mormon doctrine up through mm, 1979, 8, somewhere in there, that the mark of Cain was the black race, that the black race was cursed. That's the reason black men could not be in Mormon, in Mormon uh, doctrine teaching uh, Black men could not be in the priesthood because the black race was the mark of Cain and that race was under a curse. And then one day in 1978, God revealed to the prophet that that's all wrong and they changed it. And it just happened as the Mormons were wanting to advance their movement into places of color. That that was a convenience. It's kind of like when polygamy was very much a part of the early founding of Mormonism until they wanted to be recognized as one of the states and be included in the union. So, well, and then all of a sudden, the Lord gave a very convenient revelation that we're not going to do that anymore. And guess what? They became a part of... Utah became a part of the United States. Now, it still goes on. Not among the rank-and-file Mormons that we, you know, see on the, the bikes and whatever. They ride bikes anymore, I don't know. But uh, usually through some offshoots or whatever, polygamy is still a big deal out there. But all I want you to see is that many have speculated, even in crazy ways, that a race or whatever was the mark of Cain. We don't know. And it's certainly nothing in Scripture in any way would suggest that it has to do with any kind of racial uh, aspect of that mark. But we don't know. But whatever it was, would you agree that it was part of God's mercy? Because again, it was part of the context of the Lord saying, Cain, I'm going to be your keeper. You may, not, you may have failed as your brother's keeper, but I'm going to be your keeper. Um, and so the Lord is no longer speaking to Cain in mercy, but God is now having to address Cain in words of judgment. And this is going to be judgment upon Cain. Then it says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. Nod means wanderer. He dwelt in the land of Nod. I see some of you here tonight dwelling in the land of Nod. That's all right. It's Wednesday. You've worked hard. Sunday morning, we have a lot of people from the land of Nod. I'm just kidding. You know what I always like is when one of you come up to me and said, I'm so sorry, I, I, I was falling asleep. And I guarantee you, 99.99% of the time, I don't ever see it. So don't confess it. I'm like, oh, okay. I really don't see it. I look at top of people's heads. So I don't. I don't, uh, unless you're in the first, no, even then, I don't, I don't, uh, 
I see more what's going on in that hallway. That's, that's what I have to not get distracted over. But anyway, nevertheless, let's get back. Uh, he dwelled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And here, oh, here, oh, we love this. Everybody wants to know, where did Cain get his wife? Well, somewhere, somewhere in this line, uh, somebody married their sister. Now think with me. That was what we would, what is called incest, was later codified in the Mosaic Law uh, as something that was um, deemed against the law of God, okay? But think about it in this early context. We are at the very front end of human creation. Uh, the gene pool, the gene, the genetic structure, had not yet reached a point where that mutation would be something that would have the physical uh, issues of marrying somebody that was, you know, in your, in your close family tree. But let me read you something that, uh, again, it's very brief and may not answer everything, but let me read you something from Don Stewart, and it's just a brief uh, thought here, and you can go online and, and uh, look at some of this. But remember, the Bible is not giving exhaustive history. In fact, before I read that, look over in Genesis chapter 5. You have your Bible. Um, and it says that, uh, da -da -da -da, verse 3. Let me keep going down here. Um, verse 4, that after, and we may not get to this tonight, but uh, God gave Adam and Eve that she bore another child named Seth after the death of Abel. Then it says that, verse 3, and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son. He was 130 years old, men, uh, when he had a son in his own likeness. I'm sure the the uh, plays at school, I want to know about your granddad, your great-granddad is here, uh, Seth, uh, to pick you up. Uh, after his image, and named him seven. Now, verse 4. And he begot Seth, meaning Seth was born to Adam and Eve, the days of Adam, total were 800 years, and it says, and he begot sons and daughters. Adam and Eve had multiple children. You can have a lot of children in 800 years. Okay, now let me read you something about where did Cain get his wife. Uh, the Bible says Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. Getting a little ahead, but that's what chapter 5 is about. He then lived, Adam, he then lived another 800 years. God had promised Eve that he, God, would greatly multiply her conception, Genesis 3.16. In fact, Jewish tradition states that Adam had 33 sons and 23 daughters. 
Therefore, many people could have existed at the time when Cain killed Abel. It has been conservatively estimated that 32,000 people could have been alive at that time this occurred. Furthermore, Genesis 5 records long lifespans of the descendants of Adam. If we assume the couples gave birth to children for only half of their lifespan, then the population by the time of Adam's death could have been quite large. Moreover, the genealogy in Genesis 5 records that every descendant of Adam down to Lamech, and that's in Genesis 5, had other sons and daughters that aren't specifically named or mentioned, but had many sons and daughters, or other sons and daughters. These other sons and daughters were born to men not older than 187 years. With these facts in mind, there would be no problem finding a wife for Cain. Prior to his banishment, Cain could have had many women from whom to take a wife. Obviously, they're going to be very close in the genetic gene pool, but, um, you know, I don't, again, remember this is selective history, and in a moment, like when we look to Lamech, uh, in fact, um, we'll see Lamech here in a minute, he had two wives, at least in that's stated in, in Genesis 4. Remember this Bible principle. I've said this several times, and it's really, really key, and it's very helpful. Remember when you read Scripture. I was reading in my daily Bible reading in Joshua of one of the battles in which everybody, I mean, it was just total, total wipeout. You know, Joshua and his army, just nobody survived. I mean, it was... There's a lot of things in Scripture you will read, and always keep this principle in mind. Ask yourself, is this, is this what I'm reading descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive, describing. Is it stating something factual that happened? Right? Cain killed Abel. That's describing something. It's not prescriptive. It's not advocating you go and kill one of your siblings. So everything you read in there is not being prescriptive. It's just describing this is what happened in this historical situation, context, whatever it is. But it doesn't mean that because somebody was polygamous or Lamech here at the end of chapter 4 was a bigamist, uh, it doesn't mean that God is sanctioning that. In fact, we know full well because he made man... One man, one woman to be married. But we're seeing the digression and the effects of the fallen nature of man already within a few generations of the effects here. You with me? So, again, somebody in that line, to get things going, there had to be a marriage between a brother and sister um, and again, if you're thinking through the genetic structure and the mutations that would happen over time, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, the corruption that happened through the generations. Uh, you know, the Rio Grande River starts somewhere up in uh, mountains, somewhere up in Colorado, the, 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 the spring. 
Would you rather drink from the spring or would you rather drink it once it trickles down through New Mexico, Texas, into Mexico before it goes out the Gulf of Mexico? Would you rather be somewhere in the middle there in Mexico drinking out of that river once it's kind of gone through all the... Why? Because it has corruption, doesn't it? So somebody said, you know, just as an illustration of the corruption of the human genetic structure that happened over time, whereas we're speaking about a period of time very early in creation. Again, I'm not saying all this is going to be satisfactory, but you know, you just you just you just deal with what you have to deal with there. Now, there's been some attempts because they don't take the Genesis uh, creation account literally. There's been lots of attempts to explain away meaning in, in trying to harmonize evolution with the biblical narrative so that, you know, in the billions of years that humans came into existence, that at some point God chose individuals that were already alive and existing as an Adam and Eve, but they were already existing and selective and worked through them. They were not original creations by God. They were just selected out of already a humanity that has already reached a certain culmination through evolution. So it's not taking the biblical account seriously, but it's trying to harmonize between the population and trying to harmonize with what Scripture identifies as these first two parents that, uh, that God began to work through. So there's ways that others who wouldn't take the Bible literally have attempted to explain that. Again, everything isn't always in a nice tight package, but there is some um, plausibility there as far as the population. And that's why I said it will say in the process of time. We don't know if that was a week or a hundred years. You know, when the Bible just makes those, those jumps. Not like saying, you know, on Monday Cain did this, and on Tuesday, you know, he did No, it just... It just leapfrogs, you know, lots of years, lots of things that are going on. So, but I think if you keep in mind that descriptive, prescriptive, not necessarily for, certainly it's descriptive in the sense of marrying your sister or marrying a, a, you know, a first cousin or something like that. Isn't that one of the reasons why they used to make you do blood tests before you got married? Oh, there's a lot of jokes I could make now, but I'm trying to refrain. All right, don't want to lose it here. <laughs> Look at, uh, let's keep going. Um, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. This again is Cain who went out from the presence of the Lord, it looks like I might have froze up up there because I didn't move it in time. Hold on, for Jeanette, you go up there. Let me just turn it off and re-enter it and see if I can get back in. See if it'll help me. Nope, I may need your help to go up there. It it went to sleep on me. Oh, no, didn't didn't do it. All right, sorry about that. Yep, okay. Uh, I'll let her turn it off and turn it back on. That's why I may give up on doing this. I was hoping it worked. It was working so well, but every once in a while we've got little gremlins in the 
in the system, and it doesn't like, so tell me when you put it back on. Put it back on, all right. Very, very good, okay. Did you put it, turn it back on? Okay. Let's try it one more time. No, just turn it off. Uh, what verse was I at? Verse uh, 17, okay? That's why a good thing to bring your Bibles. I'm not going to mess with that anymore. It's too aggravating. So uh, just bring your Bibles. saves a lot of time. Uh, verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelled in the land of Nod. Wanderer is what Nod means on the east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. She conceived bore Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city after his uh, son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, not Iraq, Irad, and Arad uh, begot Mahujael, and uh, Mahujael begot Methushael, not Methuselah, Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Lamech is the seventh generation from Cain. Cain, seventh in that line there. Um, and then it says in Lamech, who was a bigamist, Again, what we're seeing is the digression. We already see a departure from the uh, husband-wife uh, role that God had initiated and created. Verse 19, then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the second was Zilah. And Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwelt in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the harp and flute. Music. I want you to see, even in this very ancient culture time, we see, we see some organization and some, uh, uh, I don't want to say business, but we see, uh, we see some method where there's, where there's people in charge of Livestock of um, uh, keeping keeping of, of that probably as as a business. His brother's name was Jubal. We see the uh, here even in after the fall some uh, beginning of the arts. Certainly not honoring to the Lord necessarily, but we see the beginning of playing harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And you see a woman of leadership named Naamah. So that's what we see in this very early culture. And then there's this poem, or there's this uh, very, uh, you could almost say blasphemous type of song that is attributed to this Lamech. Again, he's the seventh in line from Cain, and I'm going to, the reason I'm, saying that because I'm going to point something out here in a minute. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. O wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. So he's taking that which was judged by God of what Cain did, and he's actually extolling it, isn't he? I didn't just kill anybody. I killed two people. I killed a young man for, for bumping me in the, in the store. I don't know. I didn't say that. But for hurting me. And if Cain shall be avenged, verse 24, sevenfold, and Lamech, 
77-fold. Remember when Jesus was asked how many times should we forgive? thought that was interesting there. Now we see in verse 25 an entirely new change up here. Again, what the writer I think is wanting to do is to show the godly line and the ungodly line. The focus now is going to be on the godly line that is going to be reestablished, if you will, by the birth of Seth. Abel is dead. Seth is a child that was given or that Adam and Eve bore another son. Again, we know that they have many sons and daughters, but the line is specifically through Seth. And Adam knew his wife, verse 25, and again, she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another, notice the term here, uh, uh, Eve said, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. Genesis 3.15, she says seed, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men, verse 26, it says, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let me just, if you give me four minutes, let me just, because this kind of flows into chapter 5. We're not going to... Chapter 5 really is establishing the, uh, if you, in fact, if you fast forward, look at 532, because you see where 532 sets us up now with the birth of who in verse 32? Noah, all right? But notice chapter 5, it says, and again, the writer of Genesis is wanting to, he's not, he's not, he's wanting to show and establish this, this new godly line that is back online through Abel. Now, remember I mentioned how Lamech was the seventh generation from Cain? Well, Seth is the seventh generation from Adam. Again, emphasis on the two, two lines. Godly, ungodly. Godly, ungodly. So this is the book, chapter 5, verse 1. I'm just going to read it, make a comment or two, and then we'll be done. And this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. It's almost kind of a reboot now to get back. He created them, male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And we read this a little bit, but verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years, and when he was 130 years, he begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. So 800 plus what? 130. 930, is that? And he begot more sons and daughters. Adam was, he was busy. They were, he took that repopulate and to, uh, <laughs> to populate the earth. He was going to do that, wasn't he? So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. I'm going to stop there. But one thing you begin to see as you read on chapter 5 is after it mentions these various genealogical people, and it always ends with, and they died, and they died, and they died. Death, death. But then there's an exception to all this in chapter 5. 
Look to uh, verse 21. Actually, let me start up in verse 18. We pick it up kind of in this with an individual, again, coming from the line of Seth, line of Adam, down through Seth. We see Jared lived 162 years, and he begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years. And he, it says 19, he had more sons and daughters. And he died. Now Enoch, his son, lived 65 years and he begot Methuselah. And after he got Methuselah, it says Enoch walked with God 300 years and begot sons and daughters. Again, a lot of, a lot of babies being born. So all the days of Enoch, verse 23, were 365 years. Now look at verse 24. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. He's the only one in this chapter who doesn't say that he died. Now again, some people see this. He was taken, trans, trans, uh, transferred, translated. He was taken bodily form. Uh, the Bible, New Testament doesn't use the word rapture, but I think that's what, uh, isn't that what 1 Thessalonians 4? However, again, we're not... We're not in disagreement that there's going to be some type of rapture uh, where we get wound up is, is in the timing aspect, but there is clearly going to be a catching up of the saints, right? I mean, that's what it says. Um, and Christians debate the timing and scheme and all that. So we see Enoch, we could say Enoch was what? He was raptured, wasn't he? He was taken bodily form. You know, the two witnesses in Revelation, is it Revelation or is it in seven? Where's the... Oh, don't hold me that. Uh, but remember the two witnesses that will appear? Many think because uh, of the two witnesses that were taken bodily were Elijah and Enoch, that they will be the two witnesses. I don't know. I don't know. And you don't either. But it's interesting, isn't it? Right? But there's some suggestion, and if they were taken bodily, that they will be the two witnesses that we see in the book of Revelation. I don't have a problem with that. It just, again, it's... Um, but Methuselah, I'll leave with this. I found this interesting. Methuselah, oh, I just shut it here. It says that uh, Methuselah lived, verse 25, lived 187 years, and he begot Lamech. And it was Lamech, verse 28, lived 182 years, and he begot a son, and he called his name Noah. It's interesting that Enoch named his son Methuselah that one Hebrew or several Hebrew scholars uh, that the name Methuselah means, because the Bible says in, in Jude, uh, in the book of Jude, there's only one chapter, but it says Enoch preached judgment in his generation. Well, how did he do that? Well, some have said by the name of Methuselah that the name Methuselah means when he is dead, it shall come to pass. And what is the judgment that's going to come to pass with Noah? The judgment of the flood. 
Methuselah, when he is dead, it shall come to pass. Could that be the way that he preached judgment according to Jude? Is that... Um, interesting, isn't it? If I was the dad of Methuselah and that was his name, I'd be making sure he didn't go outside and ride his bike or do nothing. If he fell and skinned his knee, like, oh no, it means when he dies, this is going to come to pass. No, let's keep it, let's keep him and protect him. I don't know, I'm being, being silly there. But it's interesting that that name means that when he dies, now some, and I haven't researched this and I haven't verified this, I heard somebody or read it or something or somebody said it, that they calculate that, that when the death, let me make sure I read it correctly and I'll end on this. That when Methuselah, the year that Methuselah died was the year of the flood. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't verified that or looked at that. But interesting. Because we see now with verse 32, Noah had three sons in chapter 6. The Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? A lot of, you know, we all know they're aliens, right? No. Uh, there, really, there's a lot of weird stuff there, and uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, and uh, read chapter 6 about these Nephilim that came, and, and it says that there were giants that came as a result of this Nephilim, and who are they? Some speculate they're de demonized men, some have speculated they're actually some type of beings from, I don't want to say outer space, but not of this earth, that came. And in other words, when you read chapter 6, the corruption of the earth had reached such a high point apex that God's only response was to do what? Like a whiteboard. Just wipe it off. Something happened in chapter 6 that was so corrupting because... Humanity's been on a corruption process. But something seems to culminate in chapter 6 that was so great that it bore the wrath of God in bringing destruction to the earth. 